We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Bucks won a f***ing NBA championship. Yeah! What? What? He tries to take a pulse, baby. Watching that basketball game, like, caused health problems for me. Boogie hates racism and Chris Paul. And who cannot get on board with that platform? If I've learned a lot, this, I, I'm not going to say it. That sounds too good. No, roll. Uh, roll no, 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 no. <laughs> if the Bucks do win it all, Pat Connaughton's numbers should be in the rafters. Hey there, welcome to GSPN Milwaukee Bucks feed. I am Ty Windish, very excited to have a Eurostep and win in six Christmas collaboration. Doesn't really have anything to do with Christmas, but I am joined by my good friend, Adam McGee, to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks going 6-0 and on their recent homestand. I believe 15 straight wins at Pfizer Forum, should have looked that up before we started the show, but regardless... Milwaukee is on a winning streak, the longest in the NBA. They have been great at defending home turf this season, and we're going to talk about it. Very excited to do so. But first, of course, Adam, how's it going? I'm doing well. It's going well. I believe I'm looking at the schedule here. The Pacers on December 6th, December 7th. Not in five. They be. Oh, it's in Vegas. ESPN. Oh, that's right. So it was tournament. A... Yeah, that that's oh, why okay. we that's why that's we're it. saying you're right. That's why we're you're saying in Fiserv. Yeah, I like it. You're on it. Um, yeah, things are going well. Books are looking good. They're not looking perfect. I think people should just get used to that and accept that and be like, hey, if they're looking good and they're winning, and the offense is like pretty insane, good things to come as the season goes on. I think a lot of fun to watch right now. So. Beating some, I mean, this is a weird part of the schedule where it always looked as a stretch where they could kind of stack up some wins. But at the same time, some of these teams are pretty good. Like the Magic are pretty good, interesting team. Good test and I think a pretty good performance all around. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some else we've seen lately. I think part of the reason that, especially earlier in the year, and I think there's still some of this sentiment And listen, they're not as good of a defense relative to the rest of the league as they were. I think anyone with a pair of eyeballs and any familiarity with what Damian Lillard does versus what Drew Holiday does, and you could go down the line too. Uh, You know, campaign versus Javon Carter, right? Um, You know, a lot of changes on the perimeter defensive side. Wesley Matthews wasn't always available, but another very good perimeter defender who hasn't played. And the Bucs, one of their best wing defenders, on this team, also hasn't played all that much, which hasn't helped. But I, I think in addition to those sorts of changes, 
it's just a different league. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw, I posted some stats this morning, but like when the Bucks, that 2019-20 team, which was their most dominant regular season team, I believe in terms of point differential, that team had a defensive rating of 102.5, which led the NBA. And for if you're not familiar, that means they allowed just 102.5 points per 100 possessions, which is about a basketball game. So it's a way to normalize versus points per game allowed and give you a better sample. So that was first in the league. I think the Raptors were at 104 point something, kind of right on their tail. This year, the Timberwolves' best number one ranked defense, defensive rating of 107.6. That's only four years ago, four seasons ago. But the best defense is five points worse. And the best offense, I think I'm looking right now, the Kings, I believe, had like a 117 offensive rating, 118.6, according to NBA stats last season. That was a a record at the time for most points scored per 100 possessions. There are five teams currently scoring at least 119 points per 100 possessions. So the offensive explosion is definitely here. The Bucks are one of them, by the way, scoring 120.2, which again, if it wasn't for the Pacers and Sixers this season, would be the best we've ever seen. And of course, if they did it for a full season, we're only 28 games in, but still... I mean, there's a personnel change, there's scheme change, there's also a league change that is having a big impact on just the way scores look around the NBA. And I've seen some people try and do the like, oh, you can't keep allowing these 30-point quarters. It's like, well, the average NBA offense scores nearly 30 points a quarter now, so it's going to be kind of tough to avoid. It's been an interesting year from that standpoint. And the Bucks, I mean, they're feeding into it. They have a great offense too, but there's been multiple teams who are just – absolutely blitzing every defense right now. Yeah, and I think the books were an outlier defense. Like, at their best, it's not even that they were putting in numbers that look, you know, kind of silly compared to what's the best mark in the NBA now. At that time, there were years where the books were nearly a couple of points better per 100 possessions defensively than anyone else. So they were an outlier, and I think we have a habit of comparing them from a place where, they were one of the best defenses the NBA has seen for quite some time. I think what we're seeing now, though, particularly as things are starting to look a little bit smoother and ramping up, by the end of the season, who's to say the Bucs aren't the outlier offense in the NBA? And that is a complete kind of switch, and we're getting used to that. And I think it's natural that I think Bucs fans are going to continue to look to the defensive end, where, I mean, I guess it's worth noting, things have got better, and it does fluctuate in-game, from moment to moment, but I I guess something that's been true, even from earlier points of the season and where there was a feeling of greater struggle, this Bucks team has generally found a way to lock in and get it done defensively when it matters and when they need to within a game. And that might be all that matters when your offense is as kind of high-powered as this one is. So, I like, we're in this constant state, and I feel like the likes of ourselves and probably all our listeners who are watching books games all the time and thinking about the books and talking about the books are a little bit ahead of this. I noticed one prominent national media person come to the conclusion this week where it just like it kind of finally clicked of, Oh, you know what? The books might still be good. They're just different. And it's like, yeah, well that's been, everyone could tell you that from the moment the trade was made as much as anything else. Like it's been clear 
this team can't be last year's team, the year before that, the year before that. These are not Bud's books, and it's not necessarily down to the change in head coach. That's a factor in it, but the change of point guard is really the the ultimate deciding factor. So they're a different team. We're going to have to win in different ways, and they're doing it so far. And I, I don't see real reason to believe they won't keep doing it for the remainder of the regular season. Obviously, when we get to the playoffs, it will be testing out a completely different approach that we haven't seen with these players when pressure is at its greatest. Yeah, um, and to your your point of, you know, it's the defense has felt better lately since November 3rd, so I look at these stats all the time. That's when the Bucks started dropping. So first four games, they had Brooke all over the place, you know, at the level, attacking stuff. Didn't work great. The, the rim was wide open. Since November 3rd, that's 24 games for Milwaukee, and there's all the stats are good, but 114.5 defensive rating ranks 14th in the NBA over that span. So again, they're not a top five defense even in this you know run of better play, but top half, which is you know there there's I think there was a thought that they were going to struggle to get out of the bottom ten, and they are creeping up toward the top ten right now, and it's still worth noting that. Jay Crowder looks to be able to help that number quite a bit if he can maintain his early season play, which is a question coming off of injury. We will also see what, if anything, John Horst does at the deadline. But I, I love that we've been able to put off trade talk for pretty much all this regular season. Uh, before the IST, I mentioned like, oh, maybe we can get to it after that. I don't even think it's really worth talking about right now. The Bucks have not been in any rumors. Um, I, I think... Woj in one of his threads Q&As was asked about kind of the Bucks and trading and he's like well they don't have many assets so not not sure which to me says there's just nothing out there right there's just not much rumor we know the Bucks will look nothing's been out there so we don't really have to talk about it too much um, I, I think the defense has been getting better I think right now it feels like rebounding has become a key Bucks stat and it's been an interesting year to me because it almost feels like Adrian Griffin and the Bucks have kind of played whack-a-mole with their issues. It feels like there's been not even all just changes. There's just been different emphases that have helped a lot. So, of course, early it was putting Brooke back in the drop, which should have probably been the base defense from day one, but it has been since day seven or whatever, and it's worked. So that's good. Then it was transition. And I think we get a lot less of these really ugly leakouts for dunks. I know somebody had one. Bobby Portis had to foul, I think, Paolo Bancaro. Uh, after a missed three, that was unfortunate in the Magic game, but it wasn't a an endemic issue for the Bucks defense in the Magic game. Now it's the defensive rebounding; they just give up too many offensive rebounds, and that's still been a little bit of a struggle for them. But I think in this winning streak, for sure, and really starting with that, the Knicks game in the in season tournament, the Pacers game in the in season tournament was bad. The big Pacers win at home, the kerfuffle. I think they were better. I think we've seen that start to change a little bit. They still give up too many offensive rebounds. And that one, I don't think that's not really a scheme. That's just everyone has to box out. Everyone has to work hard to grab rebounds. But to a point you made earlier, it does feel like you can see a different level from this Bucks in like the fourth quarter. And they've brought it to the mm-hmm. first quarter early in games too, which has been nice. But of like, all right, we'll be serious now. Like we'll defend now. We're going to get deflections. We're going to block shots. You know, we're going to grab all the rebounds. And it's, it can be a little frustrating, but it's also comforting. Like, this is an old team. And the fact that there are – like, when they, when you can tell they, they know they have to do it, I think they've been able to do it by and large, which to me is encouraging even if sometimes in the third quarter against Chicago or whatever, you're like, can we do it a little bit more right now? 
Can we ratchet it up a little bit right now? But, you know, I, as we've said how many times, it is a December game versus whoever. And I think that is worth keeping in mind, too. Yeah, and I, I do think there's there's a couple of things. I think offensive rebounding is an issue. I thought something that actually I've noticed a few, in a few different games this season that was kind of standout against the Magic, too. They got some nice things going when Cole Anthony was in running the second unit and they were moving the ball really, really well. I, I think that's something to watch with the books, kind of how how smooth are their defensive rotations? It's always been something of an issue, I think, for some players in this team that if you kind of you get them in motion, you're going to find gaps. It's true for every team, but I do feel like the books are maybe more vulnerable in that regard. If you come to the books defense pretty you know, static, Good luck. You know, Giannis and Brooke are just going to swallow any kind of shot attempts at the rim. So I think there there are things like that, which we could see improvement as the season goes on. And as they get more tested in this form, I can to be impressed by Dame. I, Dame is a, a much better. I, I don't even want to be like more passable. He's a better defender than I thought. Like he is very, very solid. He's always engaged. He's just a pro's pro. And that works in a way that lots of other you know, offensive superstar, offense first point guards, they wouldn't hold up in the same way. But he's more than able to compete there. And when we look at what has changed with the Bucks defense, we talk so much about the difference in Dame to Drew. And obviously, Drew is so far beyond just being even a plus defender that there is a difference. But I think there is other elements to it as well. It's not it's not just entirely on Dame where the differences in how those two guys play. Um, I think the other thing a point you made, and it's one thing, again, we spent so much time talking about what's different and having to come to terms with that and realize this is a different books team that's going to win in different ways. It's nice when you see some things kind of rear their head and show true that we're familiar with. Stronger first quarters is one of those, <laughs> because if you're a good first quarter and you're a good fourth quarter team, you'll generally work it out. I know we've seen the books over the years sometimes be a catastrophic third quarter team and put themselves in games that should have been clear blowouts because of that. But I believe before the Orlando game, it was five straight games where the books led after the first quarter. And although they didn't lead against the Magic, their first, say, five minutes were actually one of the best starts I've seen. It was beautiful, beautiful basketball. So many really nice plays. Giannis coming out aggressive and making shots. Brooke getting to his spots um, with that really, really nice um, full-court pass from, from QB1, Chris Middleton. So good. I, it's It's moments like that where you're like, oh, that kind of feels like the best of Bud's books as well. And I'm not opposed to just if we can get to a point in the season where the, the kind of the combined feelings of what was good about old and what is good about the new books come together. I think that's when we'll really see them hit their stride. So I think improved first quarter performance, not starting games as flat. That's a big deal as well, because with the way with the kind of players they've got and with Dame in particular now. You know, there's always a chance that this team is going to go off on a big run if you're not putting yourself kind of behind the eight ball to begin with well that big run is going to just open up the lead and you're going to be in control of the game more often than not so it's nice to see some improved first quarter play even though in the fourth quarter they've been really good pretty much all season yeah it's been a fun trend to keep an eye on and fun is an operative word when i was watching the start of that (laughs) orlando game i was just this is so fun this is like some of the most fun basketball we've ever gotten to watch i still 
you know, seeing Dame do Dame stuff, I am all the time just kind of like, how do we get here? What did we do to deserve? I mean, I know the Bucks have, have only, quote unquote, won one championship, but like, I just can't imagine a more fun turn for the Bucks over the last couple of years of like, oh, they always, the defense is so good, but the offense, Chris and Don is do enough. And now it's like, okay, I think they can do enough on offense now. I, I think, I think they've got that sorted. But uh, a good, and this is season long numbers, not just the since they started dropping, but uh, it's been a great sign to see their starting five in general has just been outstanding. So that makes sense that it coincides with the very start and the very end of games because, of course, mm-hmm. that's usually when you use your starters. But in 256 minutes of Dame, Beasley, Chris, Giannis, Brooke, the Bucks have a plus 18.4 net rating, which would be first in the league, 125.6 offensive rating, which would be best ever, 107.2 defensive rating, which I think would be better than the Wolves' season-long defensive rating. So to me, some of these numbers are actually almost shocking. I know the the big three minutes are pretty actually similar to these, the Chris, Giannis, Dame minutes, probably because you know they've played a lot in that starting lineup when they've been together out there. Uh, but that group has defended pretty well. And then if you look at that group with uh, Pat Connaughton in for Beasley, they've played much fewer minutes. They've been even better with a 95 defensive rating in 58 minutes. So I think we're seeing the the primary players have really clicked and have really found success. And now it's about, okay, how can we stabilize that bench unit? What can we do there? And I think, you know, that's a conversation to be had. And I think maybe if anything, if nothing else, Maybe that's going to be the biggest trade deadline thing. I think some people would like, you know, a player to supplant Malik Beasley to come in. I mean, that would be great if they can find someone like that. But Beasley has been really good and I think has really fit in a lot of important ways. And, you know, there was like some talk like should Andre Jackson just hold that starting spot over him? I'm not there yet. I I think Andre Jackson's had some awesome Mm -hmm. moments. The idealized Andre Jackson, you know, what we hope to see from him in like year three, year four. Absolutely. Right now, though, still too many rookie record scratch moments, and same with Marjan Bochamp, to where Gimme Beasley, where some games he kind of floats out there, but he's also capable of literally knocking down eight threes and kind of just ending a team by himself, especially when you factor in when he's doing that, you have to pay more attention to him as a defense. Okay, now what does life like look life look like for Dame, Giannis, Chris? I mean it's they they found something with this group, and it's been pretty cool to see after a bit of a shaky start for Beasley. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I think the thing that's kind of impressed me most with Beasley, surprised me most too, is he seems pretty content to go quiet, like, which is a real strength when you are the fifth guy in your lineup and you're playing mostly as a starter. You're the fifth best player. We know he's really talented offensive. We know he likes the ball in his hands. We know he likes to shoot. Well, guess what? You're just not going to get a ton of opportunities to do all of that. So this is where it comes to fitting in and where over the years, like we've had so many fifth starter conversations, but ultimately it kind of hasn't mattered. And even when it has mattered and the books have found someone who's a really nice fit, it's often because they've done very little and they're quite content to do very little and stay out of the way. And that's more necessary now with Dane than it ever was before. So I think what you've got to look at is like, I, I love everything about Andre Jackson Jr. I think he looks great. The team are not exactly thriving when he's on the floor. He is making good plays Part of that might be he is a pretty weird player and he's kind of frantic and there can be something very Marjan, he's having his ups and downs. And honestly, there was moments last night where he looks completely lost out there. Then there's other moments where you're like, where he throws down the dunk over Jonathan Isaac and you're like, okay, well, that's that's fun to see. But I, I think Beasley is just steady because he's very comfortable and clear, clearly even from his social media is just loving being on this team it's it's having a lot of fun on instagram like he he posts like he is one of us who's on the team <laughs> he is so excited every time like check it out i'm in the background of this photo with Giannis and dame that is not even a joke like literally he'll repost like he doesn't say that but you can tell it's like i'm in here too it's it's been delightful to see it the way he's excited about this but his like that takes some selflessness, which I wouldn't necessarily have put down before we were watching him as, oh, I think the greatest thing that's going to happen from Leak Beasley coming in is he's going to be really selfless and he's just going to be a seamless fit with all the book stars. It's kind of turned out that is the case. So the books are at their best with him on the floor because he's really comfortable. And, you know, Giannis, Dane, Chris and Brooke are really comfortable playing with him. So I think that's very much worth keeping in mind. The other thing I'd say when we we look at like the defensive rating of the starting five and being, you know, at a level which is comparable to the, to the best mark in the league, and then we say, how do you stabilize the bench? The reality is the bench has been destabilized by injuries pretty significantly. All of Jay Crowder's timeout, Pat missed significant time. You're even still in a spot where you're working out between. We'll, we'll call, we'll throw Marjan in and just call them the rookies. We're still with those kind of that profile player where when Crowder comes back and if they can be healthy for quite some time and maybe work out some things like I, I'd be interested if Crowder is healthy for a sustained period and he's playing well, when they'll pick spots where it's like, okay, this is an extended Crowder spot. And maybe, Bobby, you're not going to play so much tonight in a way which is reflective of what happens in the postseason in certain matchups. And I think with the ability to just do some of that, pick and choose when it's appropriate, we could see overall the team's numbers trend in a positive direction defensively very quickly. Because the reality is, like, I think there is even something like, okay, campaign for all his flaws. 
I do have a thing when you watch the books this year and it's like you still every time I see Dame as a book, I have this like double take of it, it feels so weird. But to think of some of the teams we've had and even like the version of Jeff Teague to go right back to that, that the Bucks had running backup point guard. Like campaign is such a solid backup point guard. You cannot ask for a whole bunch more of that. Does that mean that night to night you're going to be like, he is a great player out there. He's doing exactly everything. He's a backup point guard. So he's going to look like a backup point guard. You just can't really ask for too much more than that. And I, I do feel like there's something very kind of cohesive waiting to happen. If when Crowder gets healthy, he can stay healthy and the rest of the books can stay healthy. And we see how that kind of more experienced bench crew, what kind of rhythm gets worked out with them, how Griffin and his assistants work out the rotation. But I, I do think injuries to that group, it's it's playing a big factor in the drop-off in the defensive rating from our starters to looking down and being like, okay, well, what are the books getting out of the bench, guys? And how how is it changing the game for the worse in the defense end when they come in? There's reason to believe that could that could improve pretty significantly soon. Yeah, I mean, I thought even uh, the Orlando game, a couple thoughts on like the players you touched on. Pat Connaughton, who uh, has not shot the ball especially well for another regular season, which has been unfortunate. We've certainly hoped to see that turn around. I mean, it, it did in the playoffs, so I think there's still reason to trust Pat's jumper. Also, years of, of sample before last season. Um, but you look at everything else that he's been doing, and I find myself consistently like, oh, yeah, that's what it's like to have a guy who knows all the spots to be in. Like you see on offense, yep. Giannis comes over to a side of the floor. Pat is immediately clearing out down the baseline to go to the other corner and be ready to shoot a three and not be in the airspace. You see defensively, he is probably one of their best rotators. He, I, I, looked, I was looking at like rimmed defense way earlier in the season. This isn't updated. But just to see like, you know, when the defense looked bad early. I was like, well, what does it look like when Brooke is within six feet? Like, has Brooke lost a step? How concerned should we be? And the answer was no. I mean, Brooke is still excellent around the rim. Pat was up there too because he rotates to the rim and, and plays really good defense and picks up that rotation. Like, he is obviously not a clamps on ball defender, but just a guy who makes them very solid. And I thought some of their best runs in that game in the second half were Pat in there with a lot of starters and with Damon Giannis and then – Everything flowed, and they had some really excellent defense on Orlando, which is not a great offensive team by any means. But still, you know, the defense looked good. The process looked good. And then for Payne, like last night, I think he was one for four. He's been cold from mm-hmm. three after starting red hot. But you look deeper, and it's like, oh, he also had four assists and no turnovers in that run. And, you know, he's, he's he holds down the fort. It's a vet minimum backup point guard you got even after Dame. Certainly – I don't think you can turn your nose up at the production too much. I think it's important to have a short leash with him because he seems like one of those guys who kind of like Bobby, like there's some nights he just has it. There's some nights he just doesn't. And I will say I've been glad to see in this probably last week or two, Griffin has not ran him with Dame nearly as often. That used to be the rotation, him and Dame, the extra playmaking. That's gone to more of like I think we've seen – both Jackson Jr. and Bochamp in those minutes. And now with Pat back, I think he's probably taken some of those as well. So that's been encouraging to see. I, I have no issue if, you know, if Payne's minutes are going to be 48 minus X, where X is what Dane plays, I'm not going to complain, even if he's not playing great. Because he is a point guard. He does move the ball. He does set guys up. You know, does he call his own number too much sometimes? Maybe. Does he fight but not accomplish all that much defensively? Probably maybe too. But 
Uh, he is a true backup point guard, and I can certainly see why you know, a coach would find value in that. And it's something the Bucks really haven't had, to your point, all that often, at least at that level. So uh, hopefully – Because think... they kept trading George Hill. I mean, that's the main reason. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have it. They, they, they had it for multiple seasons, and then they'd trade it, and they'd get it back, and they'd trade it. Peak Bucks george Hill. I don't know if this team would have lost a game. I mean, oh my god. Well, that's a but different that kind of guy fit. too. Yeah. I, I do wonder when I when I see like Bucks fans talk about campaign, I think is some of that like kind of shaded by what they remember, like when George Hill would just go out and score like twenty three points and have four assists and no turnovers in like twenty five minutes. Like that that wasn't normal. The Bucks got some really, really good. Unfortunately, I think the peak of it was the the pandemic year. Um, where where George Hill was at his best, and that kind of that yeah. turned for them from there. But he was the best point guard on the team that year. Yeah, that's true, and that that's so kind of abnormal in terms of what you can expect from that spot. But I think like fourteen to fifteen minutes a campaign, he's very competent, right? And he, the ball just the ball isn't going to stick necessarily. You can stick with him sometimes, but it's not going to stick with guys who don't know what they're doing, who can't initiate offense, who aren't comfortable. And that has been a problem for the Bucks in the past. It's just having someone who is, you know, an on-ball guard who can take some of that responsibility makes a big difference. Definitely, I think there's, I think there's good bench stuff coming. Like, yeah, and even for the trade, I don't see trades. I this is going to be, I, I feel like the opportunity could come up. But look, I won't say John Horse isn't going to make a trade, but I think the Bucks will be even more so than they have been in recent years, and they might be at the front of the queue with Giannis and Dame, if there is anything that comes at a buyout market and it's always a little bit more scarce than it has been in the past, guys are going to want to go to the team with Giannis and Dame with a few months left and the chance to win a championship. And I, I do think that could be where reinforcements come. But as long as you know everyone stays healthy and like the starters are playing as well as they are with Beasley, I think you're kind of good in that regard. And you'll be looking for someone who brings you something different as a bench tool, maybe could slot into starting lineups. I'm not sure that's going to be via trade, though. But look, there's a couple of months for that to change yet. Yeah, my, my thing with trades continues to be, I, I just don't think they'll do it unless it was a player who's either clearly better or fits much better than whatever they're giving up. And I just don't think there's a lot of those who would actually be available around the league. Like, I think... It's a little divisive. For me, Caruso is one where I'm like, if he's actually gettable, then yeah, I think that does make a ton of sense. I think his defensive upside is good enough. But this group of guys, it's like, uh, uh, Tybal is kind of interesting to me, but like Dorian Finney-Smith, Royce O'Neal, these kind of guys who it's like, I mean, are they great defenders or were they the best defenders on bad perimeter defenses? So maybe their reps are that they're better than they are. Like I don't look at DFS as a guy who – comes in and like fixes the Bucks defense and and whatever it need whatever it needs to be fixed. But you know what I mean? Like like it makes sense, but I, I just so a trade like that, it's Pat or Bobby, and you probably have to throw in a pick because I don't know why uh Brooklyn in this case wants to otherwise. How much do the Bucks want to throw on top of Pat to turn him into Dor and Finney Smith when you have Jay Crowder coming back in three weeks? Like I, 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 don't, I, don't I like Dorian I don't think you do that. No, yeah. and you've seen Pat perform in the playoffs too in different ways where you might just have enough belief in that and the trade-off isn't there. 
Bobby would be a different story. I think that's for a whole host of reasons. That's a tough trade to make. But even I just from that's... what you're doing for your for your roster, yeah. Jay Crowder would have to be healthy and playing really well, and you'd still be like, we're gonna be on the small side, maybe. way too small. So, I mean, that's... so it's that's a tough one. I like that's I was gonna ask, and you you kind of got in front of it. Like, oh, I think it's it's easy to say like, oh, if Caruso is available. But I think the books are in a spot, obviously not having a whole bunch of draft capital that you're giving away other, like you're going to create another opening in your rotation where you've created, you've solved maybe one problem or you've added something to strengthen one area and you might be weakening another with any trade. They don't kind of have a reserve of stuff to get deals done without kind of just chipping away at another area to try and fix one. Yeah, I think uh, I do think that Portland twenty four second is a good chip, and I think that could probably get them in some of these conversations. But you know, there's I think what people often don't consider the trade machine users is like there is another team on the other end. It's not just like match salary, add one pick, and everyone's ready to dump their you know some of their best players. Like sounds like Caruso may not be available to anyone. I, I doubt that the Bucks pick collection could get that done. Uh, these other players, I mean, maybe who knows? I mean, Brooklyn is a play-in caliber team right now. They're not. They're not horrible. I don't think they're trying to be bad. They don't control their own drafts, so it doesn't really behoove them to be much worse. They need Houston to be worse. Um, and you can go. I mean, Port, I think the Tybal thing with Portland, I do think, makes a lot of sense. And it's them getting their own second back when they know they're dreadful. I still have no idea how the Bucks acquired Damian freaking Lillard from Portland, and Portland didn't say hey, we'll take our draft pick back now that we're trading the best player in franchise history and we're going to be bad and here they are, bad and ready to surrender the Bucks a top 33 or 34 overall pick, which, hey, maybe they'll use it. They've, they've actually drafted pretty well in, in the late first and early second over these last few years. Anyway, um, oh, but trading Bobby, they, how big has to come back or you have to have one ready to sign because, I mean, he's your backup center slash backup four right now and even if he's not always the most playable in every matchup, if it's that or the way Robin Lopez has looked this year, I mean, you can obviously play smaller, but I, I don't think they want to be in a spot where they have to play Brooke or Giannis the whole game. I, I don't think that's tenable, especially, you know, Brooke is, what, 35. Giannis misses some games every year. Brooke honestly usually plays more, but I, I don't – they are they are in a hard place to trade this year, I think, which is good because they have a, a deep, very good team, a great team. There's also something with Bobby, right? Because you look at this team, and one of the jarring things that speaks to the offense, which is they have like six guys averaging double-digit points per game at the moment. The offense being as high-powered as you don't really want to kind of chip away at those guys either. If you get rid of Bobby and you bring back someone who's not scoring, and then all of a sudden you just you lose a little bit of your offense. I'm saying this to someone who has always been not too shy in talking about Bobby's flaws. And we know the challenges of playing him in certain matchups in the postseason. But losing Bobby's offense when you're then an offensive first team, that's a different proposition to in the past when people might have talked about trading Bobby because of, okay, you're not getting this on defense. He can't play in certain matchups. It doesn't mean that's kind of a make or break thing, but I do think it's a slightly different consideration with the idea of if they were to trade Bobby than there would have been in the past because the whole approach of the team at the moment and where their success is coming from is more tooled towards the kind of output you see from Bobby Portis every time he steps on the floor. So that's kind of a little bit different too. It's like the idea of, say, a more defensive wing coming in for anyone. It's like 
does the defensive wing solve the defense enough that if it's going to come at the cost of anything offensively for that to make sense for this team, like the books this year might just have to kind of live and die with the offense. That's part of you made this trade. And of course you made this trade. You should make this trade, but I don't know on kind of deals like that are in the fringes. Again, it comes down to the books don't have a ton of, you know, movable pieces that you're, you're eager to move that other teams will want and that don't subtract anything from what you've got. That's kind of the challenge. Maybe there's a scenario where say, Oh, well, we'll put the name that like every time Jordan and I do a mailbag, we, we seem to get bombarded with, which is PJ Tucker. Obviously oh. let's say if PJ Tucker got bought out. Oh yeah. That's a combo. That that's one where maybe if you wanted to, if you could trade Bobby for a defensive wing you could get PJ Tucker then, but even roster spots wise, you know, these things are tricky and I don't, I don't even know if, I'm I don't think that makes I'm not sure on PJ. Yeah. I'm not sure on PJ at all. It's like he is no spring chicken. He wasn't when he was here last time. And there's been quite a bit of water on the bridge for him and a lot of not playing, which isn't yeah. ideal. Like we saw how long it took him to get up to speed um, in that championship run. So, that's as as much as any time there's kind of like a loss or a couple of games that aren't particularly pleasing to look at everyone's like oh well what if they trade for this guy for this i i think it's really tough to find trades that are just kind of slam dunks from the book's perspective where there isn't a drawback and the trades have to factor in like with everything else just the new version of the books which is an offense first team right now yeah, I don't even know. Like, and uh, PJ has a player option for the year after this year, so I don't think a buyout is likely. Seems like he wants to play a bit, which I don't really know if he would. If you just dropped him on this, like, let's just say instead of Robin Lopez, let's just just assume you swap him out. I I mean, when Crowder's out, maybe he plays quite a bit. When Crowder's back, I don't know. And I think you also get to a point where it's like, how much better does PJ Tucker make you right now than? playing Andre Jackson Jr. and Marjan Beauchamp through some of these lumps in the regular season to help grow them into guys who, whether it's this or next playoffs, can play a big role there. I know we need to be focused on every individual postseason when you have Giannis and Dame. I'm not saying to the contrary of that, but, you know, Marjan and and Andre right now are both on low sample per game shooting above 43% from deep. I mean, these guys are giving you something defensively, they're giving you something offensively. There's space in the floor. They're way more athletic, clearly. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if there is this, like, silver bullet to fix the defense that's coming in. I think, as you and I have said a couple times throughout this pod, like, Jay Crowder getting healthy for the bench and the defense should be a, a big deal. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's pretty exciting to just, you know, let's see how this group develops. And I think part of the – maybe the reason they wouldn't want to make a trade is this is the – most slapped together a Bucks team has ever been, right? Like this is a a group that hasn't played together much. And, you know, I think they acquired Drew, obviously, and made a seismic change. I think it happened, if I remember right, much earlier in an offseason than than Dame coming in with just a couple weeks, two weeks, I think, before camp uh, and media day. And obviously they had had Drew for, what, three, four straight years in a row. So there wasn't this big adjustment. So I think everyone is adjusting to Dame. I think Dame's adjusting to everyone. I think – it's looking pretty good right now. He's somehow already almost pulled himself to 38% from deep. He's at 37.9 after being like between 33 and 35 for a lot of the season. Uh, it turns out 
uh, much to the chagrin of people who gave the Bucks like a B minus for their offseason and wondered if they got the second or third best share of the Dame trade over the last couple of weeks here. Uh, it's still pretty good to have a Dame on your team. And it hasn't been super common yet. And I think it would probably be more common the bigger the game is. And now that Dame is kind of finding a rhythm and learning his teammates. When he and Giannis are both scoring at a high level, they're just overwhelming. I really don't know what you do. I mean, there's no there's no defense that can take away both of those guys. And it just gets really I, – I, I don't – it's just like – it's been so fun to watch when like, okay, Giannis dunk, Giannis dunk, Giannis spin and put it off the glass. Okay, the defense takes that half step in. Dame pull up three from 29 feet. And it's just like I, I don't know what you do. And, and then if Beasley or Chris is cooking, Chris has come on really – playing 30 minutes a game at this point, which is very mm-hmm. exciting too. Um, you know, the bench is always worth talking about. It's always a consideration. I think especially with the way we've seen Griffin coach this year, you know, it's probably going to be seven, maybe eight, maybe eight guys playing in big playoff games. I don't think it's it's going to be a deep bench moment. I think the fact that we're seeing the primary players play this well, Giannis and Dame and Chris in particular and Brooke, uh, is really, really good news for this the long-term version of this Bucks team. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think we're already seeing something of, with Giannis in particular, the idea of what does Dame just being on the court do for Giannis? Like, it makes things really easy. And when he gets going, things look easier than ever. You know, his career high franchise record night is a testament to how that can happen for him now. And why in the past, lots of big nights, but wasn't necessarily knocking on those doors too easy. It's easier with Damian Lillard out there. Um, I, I wanted to talk about Chris. I've been traveling quite a bit the last couple of weeks. So I've missed quite a few games. And kind of in that time frame, Chris has started to really ramp up his minutes. And he's kind of steadily now in recent games averaging in around 30, 30 plus minutes. So we're getting very close to just Chris Middleton being Chris Middleton in a slightly new way. I was thinking about this too. Chris used to be like something of the Iron Man kind of guy who would be leading the books in minutes all the time, 42, 43 minutes. I'm going to take a guess, and this might even apply for the postseason, that that version of Chris Middleton is gone because it just has to be preservation first. And the books have been so careful and diligent, much more so than honestly I ever would have anticipated when we think of the talk like right around the start of the season about you know minutes restrictions. I don't think... I certainly didn't anticipate that we'd still be talking about a ramp up and how many minutes is he at now as we get to Christmas. But I thought there were so many moments against the Magic. More first half. I think you probably play a little bit better first half, but you're just like, Chris looks so smooth. He's always had an old man game, but he's he's starting to look a little bit older out there. And he's he's just like kind of aging into it really nicely in some ways. Or I was like, he is looking comfortable in being the third banana. And I know this is a conversation that's been had a lot about second option, third option. And when Drew was here, it was kind of 2A, 2B was often how that kind of went. And we'd, we'd flip back from one to the other. At this stage in his career, and certainly post the injuries he's had, it is obvious that Chris is going to be better suited to being a third option. Again, less surprisingly, but to like the kind of point I was making about Malik Beasley earlier, guy still has to kind of get comfortable with that and embrace it and chris is looking increasingly comfortable where he just kind of every now and then the ball will find them and then you're like oh well that's not just a guy it's chris middleton so he can kind of step in he can hit a turnaround a mid-range jumper 
knock down a tree, he can make a play, whatever it is. But the game coming to him is something that he looks quite content to right now. And I, I think he's starting to look pretty good. And the idea of, we'll see, we'll see what his minutes ultimately get to. Like, I'd, I'd love to know if I could know now by the end of the season, what will be like the single game high in minutes for Chris Middleton? Like what is the furthest they'll push him at any point? I think that would be really interesting. Uh, but I just think in terms of kind of like plotting his way around games and just kind of, there's something about that with the way he plays. It obviously feels very different, but he's embracing the fact that, yeah, Damian Lillard is here. I don't have to do all of that. And it's better for me. I'm going to be a better player. I'm going to help make the team better by accepting, yeah, I'm the third guy. And my job is to, you know, make teams pay when they forget that the third guy in this team is Chris Middleton. Yeah, I kind of think that part of the reason the the rotation is structured as it is, you know, Chris gets a lot of a lot, not a lot. Chris, I, I shouldn't say a lot. Chris gets a few minutes, like early in the fourth, and I think in the second as well, where it's just him, no Dame, no Giannis, and like I, I think, you know, when when Adrian Griffin, the coaching staff, is drawing this up, maybe the original plan was like, well, we can have. You know, 48 minutes to Giannis and Damon. They can still play together for quite a bit of their minutes. I mean, we should do that. But I, I think it's nice that they do have – it's probably, what, like f- four or five minutes in each of those quarters where it's just Chris. It's probably pretty important for Chris to still get some reps as like, okay, I'm going to handle the ball a lot of the time or the offense is going to be funneled to me at least. And there's still those possessions. And you'll see late in games. Like sometimes it's the players drawing it up. Sometimes you can tell it's coaching based on how – you know, how scripted or how complicated the play looks. But, okay, now Chris is going to run a pick and roll with Giannis. So we're going to make sure he's involved. Like, it's not like, you know, he's, I think, like 13 points per game. I think the minutes have a lot to do. He's still on the, on the season only averaging 23. So while lately he's been playing 30, that the actual averages are creeping up with that. But I think it's good that they're not just like, all right, you're Michael Porter Jr. on this team. You know, you stand in the corner, you're an elite catch-and-shoot player, that's it. I think they're still getting a lot out of Chris. I think sometimes late in game, maybe getting too much, asking him to dribble through press coverage. Maybe let's avoid that specific look. I'm not saying don't give Chris the ball. Just give it to him in the half court. I'd feel a little more comfortable. But um, I think they've been very proactive. Like, okay, if you're going to face guard Dame from 94 feet, we'll just run the offense without your best defender and good luck stopping Chris and Giannis. And that's been very successful for the Bucs on the whole, despite some ugly moments. Uh, but I think they, they've found a really good level of involvement for Chris where it's like sometimes you run the offense. Sometimes you are that super dangerous third option where, you know, the ball comes to you as part of just an action and you're able to cook. And I remember before the season just thinking like this is the perfect role for Chris at, at this stage with the injuries as he's kind of working his way back into full conditioning, not having to put so much load on him. I mean, the worst, scariest Bucks minutes when they're healthy and they're playing their normal rotation is like for whatever it is, five, ten minutes a game, when all we have is the guy who closed out a finals as the pick-and-roll ball handler on the court. Like that's an embarrassment of riches. And, yeah, I think he's he's looked good in that role. I think seeing his three start to fall has been exciting. But his two-point shot all season has been ridiculous. And it's been such a great calming presence for them. Sometimes it's like nothing's going right. Oh, here's Chris backing down someone who's 6'5 and, and just – you know, banging home a couple of twos to stop the momentum. He's been so great in that role. I think defensively, still a work in progress. I kind of think they're finding better spots for him. Like, 
bigger guys. He's kind of fallen into that Harden role, I think, where it's like, all right, you can try and post him up. He's big. He's solid. He's tall. You know, I, I, on the perimeter, it's been a little more dicey. But again, in the biggest moments, he's been at his best, even though he's still not a great defender. That's okay, though. They, they defend well enough he's, for him in the I, I think he's good, Ty. Honestly, yeah. I think he's better than we, we give him credit for. He's just slow. I mean, yeah. He's getting slower. So it is purely if you can do your best to keep, you know, speedy guards off of him, he can hang with anyone. And he's he's not going to kind of – you're not leaving yourself exposed defensively by Chris Middleton being out there. So it is just, you know, trying to avoid him being switched onto a really fast, smaller guard. That's where the trouble comes from. I think – We've probably overcorrected to some extent yeah. because there were yeah. a couple of sequences in the Magic game where I watched them. Like that's really good defense, and we talk about so many guys, but he's got really long arms. Like, and when he's kind of just out there and he's applying pressure, he can kind of drape himself over guys. It's not easy to get around Chris Milton unless you can just kind of blow by him. And if if the Bucks can to the best of their ability, there's going to be times it's going to happen. And hey, look, part of that is having Brook Lopez back there as the last line of defense. And that works out, you know, I, I think he's better than at this point we give him credit for. He's not the Chris of earlier in his career when he was much more mobile, much quicker. But he's a he's a smart defender. And I think in a way, like we talk, like there's a play when you were talking about Pat earlier that stood out to me where Jonathan Isaac ended up, you know, on Pat, but far enough kind of just off kind of left block, too far away to just like quickly back him down. And with most guys of Pat's size, a big like that is going to be like, okay, I need to just bully my way inside here. But Pat's kind of smart enough to go, okay, I know where I am. I need to work out where's Giannis, where's Brooke. And then my job is to hold my own physically for long enough that the help can get there. And I think there's there's an element of that with Chris too. It's like, even if it is a much faster guard, it's like, okay, well, use your wingspan, use your size, and just kind of block off angles and buy everyone time. And I think it's funnel. a key thing when you and funnel yes, them toward book, like okay, you got to go through me through. The books have too. the individual defenders. Yeah. So it's it's always about you want to send guys, you want to funnel them, but it's like knowing where your teammates are. Are they in position? If I funnel them this way, is has Brooke got over in time? And part of that is being smart enough to know where you are, know the situation. And I think a big part of it is just being physically strong enough to like hold your own to to add a second or two to what it takes for an imposing team to get to the spot they want because that's all you need to get Brooke there that's all you need to get Giannis there so obviously Chris isn't what he used to be but I do think there's an element we've probably kind of overcorrected because he's a smart defender he's got good physical tools outside of his speed still and yeah your hardened comp I think is a good one I don't think he has quite that level of strength that Harden has. Yeah, probably not. But he can play in all the same ways though. You know, you'll move him easier, but he doesn't have to doesn't have to necessarily do just that. It's it's about knowing and key to it again, like the guys that he needs to help from, he has a better understanding with than most others. Like if he's trying to be like, well where's where's Giannis gonna be on the floor? Where's Brooke gonna be on the floor? He's got a pretty good idea of that. He's not new to the party. So I, I think all of that is looking pretty good. And I'm feeling pretty confident about it. I mean, the other thing with Chris, I don't know if you remember before the season, um, Jordan tweeted out the photo of Kareem and Oscar, the iconic photo of them. And then the books 
they must have seen it. You know, people yeah, go, oh, it, they recreated it. it. I didn't see any credit, uh, but they recreated it from Media Day a couple of days later with Dame and Yanis. To do the kind of historical books comp and to talk about Chris at this stage of career and what he can be, like those two guys together being the cream and Oscar allows Chris to be Bob Dandridge, yeah. who I think in terms of a style comp has always been like a really solid one. I think now at this stage in his career, it just makes sense for him to be that kind of elite turd guy. I think it's looking good. And we're only really starting to get to see it as his minutes climb too. So I'm excited for like, by the time say we get to all-star break, how we feel about, We'll we'll put it as the trio, um, not to exclude Brooke, but just how Chris is fitting in and how he's best managing to complement Giannis and Dame. I think that's kind of interesting to revisit around that time. Yeah, it's an it's a good thing to keep in mind too on just like the slower start than maybe we had anticipated is also, you know, Chris has not played a back to back and was even more, I mean, was like below twenty minutes, I think, to start the year uh, as part of his ramp up. So that certainly is a factor as well. I want to talk more about the offense and you know maybe a particular play, but first, let's talk about our friends at Sleeper. The NBA season is here, as you could probably tell from the whole start of this podcast, which means you now have a chance to one hundred times your cash on daily fantasy basketball. Basketball has never been more exciting than it is now, with stars like Giannis Antetokounmpo, Damian Lillard. Chris Middleton, Malik Beasley, Brooke Lopez, and more. Pick more or less on stats for these stars like points, rebounds, three-pointers, steals, double-doubles, and more for up to a 100x payout on Sleeper. Get your picks right and you could win big. Use promo code Eurostep, G-Y-R-O-S-T-E-P, all one word, and you'll get up to a $100 match on your first deposit. Terms and conditions do apply. See Sleeper's terms of use for details. Currently operational in over 25 states, including Wisconsin, check out Sleeper today. So there's been some consternation, maybe, about the amount of Dame Giannis pick and rolls in the offense. I think part of the reason, uh, I, I know why. I mean, there haven't been that many, and it is a, a very enticing play. I think some of the reason they haven't done it as much is they've just been more effective to have Dame and Brooke or even Giannis and Brooke run pick and rolls and have the other star operate off of them versus having Dame and Giannis do them together and then defenses just collapse. And then I think we saw this against Indiana. Okay, we'll just funnel a bunch of shots to Brooke. And if Brooke isn't hitting the shots, that's a lot easier for us to live with than, you know, Giannis dunking or Dame pulling up. But I just want your general take on like, obviously the offense has performed at, again, historic levels, but how do you feel about the way they're doing it? You know, are they running enough stuff with Damon Giannis and just your overall temperature on the offense? The offense is really good. So I, I don't see the reason to stress about this. I also don't see the reason to overemphasize this in the regular season. If you don't have to, if this could be the wrinkle that you're not really going to over and over again, but then you build up your, your comfort level very kind of gradually, diligently, and somewhat quietly where it doesn't feel like the predominant thing you're doing. And then in, you know, clutch situations against really good teams in the playoffs, you can go to it over and over again. That seems like a game changer. I I just don't think this needs to be over taught too much. I do think there are some elements to this, like Giannis is an interesting player where you do have to get some kind of feel for him because his screen setting can be 
substandard. It's not always his favorite thing to do. Like Chris has built up a great understanding with Giannis in the pick and roll and knows exactly how he's going to use his body and sometimes not use his body and what that means for timing. I think there is a reason, and I know Jordan and I talked about this a few episodes ago winning six, that the comfort level, say, Brooke and Dame have very quickly built up in pick and roll situations. It's so obvious. Brooke sets great screens. Any point guard can go and read that, understand that you get your timing down. I'm I just couldn't find it in me to be overly concerned about this because it's it's such an obvious thing. It's not like Adrian Griffin and you know, even down to the players, it's not like Dame and Giannis, it's never occurred to them, hey, we should try, you know, doing something of the pick and roll together. I, I think at this point there is probably reason to believe they're very comfortable with staying away from that and maybe holding some of that back and working out some other things. I would hope and expect that we'll see more of it gradually. I don't think in a really extreme way as the season goes on, be introduced. But I I don't see the issue. And also, that doesn't have to be the way the offense functions. It's like the most obviously deadly way to pair those guys together. It's like the trade happens and it's like, oh, just just wait until we're watching Giannis and Dame in the pick and roll. They're finding lots of ways to be pretty devastating together as is. And it doesn't necessarily have to come via that route. I would like to see some more of it just because I think there is a there are occasions and he's not a bad player to have off ball in the corner. Like if Damian Lillard is in the corner and you eventually get the kick to him, that's a really high percentage look. But at the same time, sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, this is kind of barreling through kind of traffic somewhere here. And uh, would it not be better to have Dame just a little bit closer to the action? That's where I can understand the frustration. But at the same time, I think the offense is clearly working really, really well. Yeah, you know, that's, I wouldn't, that's exactly I wouldn't where, fret. I that, wouldn't fret. That's exactly where I, I want to see more just to make sure that they have the full understanding of each other. And I think they, they run it. I mean, there was, you know, uh, fourth quarter Orlando. It just didn't really work that well. I mean, Orlando's a great defensive team and they were they were up on the screen and, and getting at poking the ball out from Giannis. I think still the worst of the worst examples are where Giannis just rushes a little too much. I think he's got to understand the gravity of Dame means he doesn't have to go full speed on the roll. I, I mean, catch the ball, take a second. You're probably four on three at that point because usually if two players don't go to Dame, he's just too wide open and defenses won't allow it. Then you can kind of, okay, do I drive? Do I kick right here? Do I throw a lob to Brook in the dunker? What is it? Um, and there were some of those where he just like was – I think some of it is because he hates Mo Wagner so much. He was like trying to move at a thousand miles an hour and poster Mo Wagner, and it wasn't necessarily working out. But um, so I'd like to see some more for sure. But also, I think the offense has been great, and they found other ways. I think the patented Giannis post up with Chris one pass away. A lot of those have morphed to doing that with Dame one pass away, and it is always just I. I I, I would say I chortle every time you see that that help defender, you know, take the the extra step toward Giannis, like, oh, we can't let this happen. And then it's a skip pass to a wide open dame catch and shoot. And it's just like, oh, that's you can't do that. You just I literally cannot ever do that. And that's that's free. I mean, if they don't have a defender who can guard Giannis, and most teams don't, shout to John Isaac, who had did a tremendous job, still got postered, did a tremendous job. Most teams don't have a guy who can do as well as he did. Um, that's just like, okay, so either we let Giannis post up, we let Dame catch and shoot, or we send the help from somewhere else and then Giannis can stand up and, oh, Bobby Porters, here's a dunk. 
they've had that. I think the Giannis um, kind of in the dunker or like being able to crash onto the Dame Brook pick and roll has been really effective because, again, just Dame doing anything with anyone draws so much attention. Oh, here's Giannis catching the ball 16 feet away with a path to the rim. We know how that story ends too. So, yeah, I think it's – I actually think it's – I'm encouraged that – I would rather have this be the case where the Dame Giannis pick and roll, they're doing it, but it's coming along slower. But they have a bunch of other stuff versus, okay, they have a play and they don't have anything else. They don't know what else to do. Like I think this is better and it's better for the team. And I like the fact that it's not just an, you know, strictly Giannis and Dame-centric offense. That said, I am heartened that like when he's out there, most of the time, sometimes not late, you know, when Chris and Giannis are, are more involved, but Dame is like the point guard. And I think early in the year, maybe just because they were kind of letting him get get his feet, uh, you know, move in and hit the ground after the layoff and not being able to work out with the Blazers in the summer. Like they were doing like, okay, Dame's not going to bring the ball up. Dame's not going to initiate the offense all that often. You know, we're going to use him as a secondary. It felt like a couple of weeks in the season, it was like, no, we'll let the we'll let the Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer point guard be the point guard. And it just feels like since that change is really when their offense has become pretty unfair for defenses. I also, I, I think there is something in, it's somewhat counterintuitive because you rarely have players this good that you don't have to be thinking about putting your two most deadly weapons together to kind of target players through them. But when you're having such a high level of success without it, the advantage of, let's say, a Dame Brook pick and roll and running quite a lot of that and maybe not going so much to Yanis is you're you're drawing your the opponent's defenders to Brook and Dame, and then you're creating kind of tree-on-tree situations to some extent where two of your guys could be Chris Middleton and Yanis. Like that's the other side of it too, where if anything kind of breaks down within the pick and roll or if Kind of Brooks sets a good screen and Dame's. I'm not going to shoot. He goes to turn around and it's like there's an easy pass. Oh, Giannis is kind of Giannis is coming behind me ahead of steam. Chris is out in the corner. Like you're giving yourself options to have an additional play. Like out of a pick and roll with Brook, you could have a very simple. Okay, you know I'm going to throw a lob up high for Brook. But when Giannis and Chris aren't directly involved in that play, and they're two of the other guys out there. Dame just has like a full menu in front of him of things he can do that are just incredible luxuries for a point guard to have. Where uh, if you focus it all around, say, Giannis, and I, there's also something to this when Brooke is out there as well, where you want Brooke. Because if you're running a lot of Dame and Giannis pick and roll, your spacing can, it's not, not necessarily going to be a problem, but it could get more challenging or you're, you're really kind of forcing Brooke to be out of the perimeter a lot more. And I think the more he's got older, like he's shooting the tree ball pretty well um, at the moment, but we've seen so much of the best of the books come from when they just embrace uh, Brooke can just still absolutely mash on guys inside. So I, I, I like to some extent when he's not in that with Dame as well, Giannis, because Having Giannis and Chris as kind of auxiliary options out of a really, really high-functioning pick-and-roll, like, it's an embarrassment of riches. What more can you want out of that? Being able to go both ways on that. It is key that they do grow comfortable and that, you know, when games are on the line, you can go Giannis Dame. And I believe they will. But I don't think it necessarily has to be, like, all downside because this is not a team with just two guys, right? You've You've got four highly highly skilled 
offensive players on the floor when your starters are out there. I think it makes sense to kind of embrace that and not get too rigid and trying to force, oh, well, we need to have, you know, Giannis and Dame. And then you're kind of more kind of closely controlling where they are on the floor. And again, to this point, Giannis, a deadly, deadly weapon in the pick and roll, but it's not necessarily like his natural habitat. He doesn't embrace that like so many other kind of bigger players in the NBA would. So I think keeping options open out of it is good too. Once it's in the arsenal, that's good enough for me because I think we'll see it when it matters. Uh, totally agree. Also, the Giannis Brook pick and roll has been devastating as well. Giannis mm. goes early sometimes and Brook gets the offensive foul, but that happened once against Orlando. But that play in particular, whether Brook is rolling or, or popping on that, then it's like, okay, if you send any help to that, you are going to leave one of Damian Lillard, Chris Middleton, Malik Beasley open. And you know Beasley's name maybe doesn't hold up with the cash. Hey, those other two players, I mean, what, he's 48% from deep on the year? I mean, it's been a pretty ridiculous – 47 yeah. – or no, 45 now. He's dropped off a little bit. But 45% from deep, like that's, that's not a percentage where you want to leave that guy open ever. And I, I will say I would imagine on catch and shoot wide open looks, it's higher. It certainly feels higher. He's had to take some high degree of difficulty shots too in some of the lineups where it's him and, you know, some bench players or the team breaks down and, you know, he's – he doesn't dribble out the ball in those situations, which is a benefit. Uh, he will put the shot up when I was going. Um, but that that has been a fun pick and roll to watch too just because like the the tush-push philosophy of just like there's too much mass here. Uh, you can't you're, – you're, you're 4-5 that you're using to guard that in a big situation. They're not as big. If they are as big, Giannis is going around them. They're not as big. And I think you get both of those guys going toward the rim and it's just like, okay – they are either going to make a shot or they're going to get the rebound and put it home. They're they're just huge and strong. And again, if you get too feisty with the help, then it's Chris or Dame or Bees taking a catch and shoot three. They've they've done a lot of fun stuff. It's been really fun to watch the different ways they've worked offensively. Feels like they're doing a good job right now, working the ball side to side as well, and just getting the switches they want, being able to operate in space. Um, yeah, certainly tough to say their offense hasn't been in a, in a good place this season. I've brought up a bunch of stuff. Adam, what's on your mind or what have you been thinking about as you've watched this Bucks team lately? What are the the any anything big or important that we haven't gotten to cover as much so far? No, I think we've covered the bulk of it. I mean, I I think one thing that interests me with Ajax and with Marjan is kind of it and this goes to the conversation we were having about trades. And if you were to bring someone in and just, I guess, what kind of happens by osmosis by having to play those guys and them getting reps is that you hope, well, you know, worst case scenario, you learn about them. You're seeing real in-game NBA reps. So if they're not going to be good enough in the longer term, you will have the evidence. You'll have all of the knowledge expertise you need to make a decision on that. I think, though, what those two guys really need is kind of what you described as Pat having to on the offensive side which is just being in the right place at the right time and kind of not getting in the way in a kind of really frantic high energy way which both of those guys can play in a way where that's a real strength you want to bring that on defense though and you've got to find a way to be a little bit more um i guess integrated into the offense at times and i think they're the kind of things that it can be tough 
Like I, one of the things I really like about Andre Jackson Jr. is the fact that I feel good about his passing. I feel he can make really. I mean, he's had a couple of incredible highlight reel passes this season, but he can make very solid passes. You're not going to worry about that. I also do think though he is not necessarily always where he needs to be, and that forces him to make more passes than you would necessarily want at times. So that's something with those two guys playing, I feel like Marjan, it's more up and down. I think the really good version of Marjan is a guy that if if that could be found consistency, the conversation changes for the books in a whole variety of ways. But I want to see those two guys just kind of pick up over time a greater understanding of positioning. And the only way you can do that is by having them go out there and play and put them in live game situations and get an understanding of here's where you should be. And here's what happens when you're in the right spots or just a gives them the opportunity to, I guess, to continue improving on how they read a game in real time and figure, okay, well, if I, if I cut here or if I rotate over to this spot in the corner, it's, it's kind of simple things like that, that I feel like, are missing from those two guys to make them much better offensively and give them a greater chance of really hanging and having high impact minutes and more plentiful minutes as books. So I think all the things we haven't covered, that's that's one. Like I like so much of what those guys bring. And it's kind of just like, well, what what does the next step look like? And I think often with players like that, like with Marjan, we could talk about, oh, well, you know, if he consistency is one key to it for sure but it's like oh well if his shot was like this we got through lots of different prospects it's like if they could consistently knock down this shot or consistently make this type of play i think for those two guys the key might just be getting a greater level of comfort to continue to improve their understanding level out there and just look more like veterans when the books have the ball offensively i think it would help all of their teammates out greatly yeah, I think Marjan, it's just like in traffic and in fast breaks is where he probably needs to clean up the most. I think overall he's he's been pretty impressive to me on, on most other fronts. And again, the fact that he and, and Andre Jackson Jr. are both shooting the ball well, uh, I'm encouraged by obviously it's small sample. But, you know, they both have been good at shooting in rhythm. Ajax started off not taking nearly enough open shots. He's since changed that. And there's some now where I'm even like, oh, maybe you could have passed that. I'm not mad at that, though. You can't you can't have those record scratch, oh, I don't shoot my open shots. And that, that just kills a possession. So it's been nice to see. Um, and, yeah, I think both guys really look well-suited for this new Bucks team in a way they, they really probably wouldn't have uh, on the Drew Holiday version. I mean, I think people were excited about Marjan last season anyway, and you can always use more young wings, but two athletic defensively minded wing players uh, under contract for the next three and four years, if you count this one respectively, is is a very exciting thing. Um, I, I would say one thing I'd think about is, and this probably doesn't even, and I'm glad it's the very, the last thing, because I don't think it's really even a topic anymore, but the idea of like, you know, that there, uh, to use a term Zach Lowe used, there was a mutiny against Adrian Griffin, or like there's this, this, you know, there's anything against him. And I, and I look at two key moments to me of the season, which game five against the Knicks when they went to drop and coming out of the in-season tournament loss when we had the Chris Haynes story. And it's like, oh, is, you know, is Dame calling something in here? And they they blew out the Knicks and they went back to drop. And 
The effort was outstanding to start that game. And the first game after the Pacers in-season tournament loss was Bulls. And they ended up going to overtime, but they started that game red hot. And I would say since that point, since that, you know, where I have the question, and I'm just talking about me here. I'm not, you know, quoting Mm -hmm. the the masses or whatever. But I had the question of like, okay, you know, Dame, uh, Bobby Portis is the one at the meeting, but Chris Haynes, I think we can guess probably where he got that story if if we want to. You know, is is Dame upset about his role? Uh, we can't say that. The The reality is Chris Haynes is going to be, for the foreseeable future, yes. possibly the source for all things books. He has the end. Tie in with Giannis to, as well. To the two most important players in the team. But it's concerning Dame not having the ball. I think it's fair to wonder if maybe that came from Dame. Let's put it that way. Yeah, uh, and, for sure. And I think part, or, of, the, part of the reason, uh, well, too, earlier that week. Maybe from Dame's, uh, I think Dame's can. probably a better Dame's way. Can. Yes, 100%. I think Dame might be talking to people in his inner circle. Yes. And that word is kind of, you know, it, and it did feel a bit like that. That's something that I don't think fans necessarily consider or even plenty of media consider when it when a story like that breaks. And then in a case like this, where it can be quite simple to kind of piece together, well, where might this have come from? To then be like, does this sound like the player in question? Does it mesh with anything in terms of their body language on the floor, off the court, what they're saying publicly in the media? And none of that did with Dame. So he he had said to Eric Name in an article about the pick and rolls, like he thinks they should run it more, plainly. Like, I, I don't think we're doing it enough. And then that story comes out. And and I love, too, that in the story – so Bobby was the one who was like, we need more late-game offense. And Griffin was like, yeah, I should probably script that more. And then Bobby was like, but we have to execute, too. So it, at the time when it first came out, I remember being like – I mean, this is – it's the only thing that's bad is this got reported. I have no issue with any of this exchange. Yes. And from that game, though, Bobby has played much better and really – and he didn't have a great game against Orlando, but over most of that homestand – was outstanding and brought a bunch of energy and intensity and, and made positive impacts. And the one thing we didn't talk about in the earlier Bobby section was the other impact of Bobby in that Pacers game was certainly felt. I think there's a value to that as well. You are not going to punk the Bucks when Bobby Portis is on the team. But also, I would say this recent stretch, and I meant to bring this up earlier when you talked about Dame's defense, I think these last six games of five serve this homestand, I mean, I think he's been better than expected for a lot of the year. I think there's been some lapses. But I think these last two weeks have been the best defense we've seen Dame play as a buck. I think he has really stepped it up. I think he has gotten uh, a bunch of deflections. He has been very involved. He has been working his ass off on that end. That, to me, is just the opposite of what you would expect to see, to your point just now, of a guy who's like, you know, checked out or not not, not buying into what the coach is putting down. And, and I don't want to read too much into, again, like two stories and, you know, what we think or, you know, what whatever's going on. But I just think you watch this team these last you know week, two weeks or whatever, this does not look like a team that has any negativity going on. This looks like a team that is rolling, that is bought in, that is playing hard. Their bench has let them down most of the time. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think you can watch any Dame game from these last two weeks and go, this is anything but a guy who is bought into winning at the highest levels, which is what we thought we were going to get. And I think that's what we're getting. There's no smoke without fire. Yeah, um, I, I, I think probably the amount of fire has been overplayed, and I, I get books fans being anxious about it and feeding into the wider conversations about Griffin. I like, I, I just, I don't think everything is perfect. I don't think it is. Um, it could entirely be true that 
for example, if we want to say Janus, because we know that, again, we won't get into to what extent, but to some extent, if if Griffin wasn't Janus's pick, he had his approval, whatever, whatever way we want to frame that. If Janus didn't hate Nick Nurse. Maybe to the <laughs> good on you, Janus, so for good reason. Um, at this point in the season, though, it's entirely possible that Janus is kind of looking at it and being like, this isn't quite what I thought, or maybe this guy isn't as good as I thought. And he's only had a certain number of coaches in his career, and he's only really had, <laughs> I think, one good coach, which is maybe a key part of that, too, to any extent. And I think it's one thing at the end of last season, like Bud's message had clearly just worn out, and it, it was time for the change. I think the time since has has made that clearer than anything. That doesn't mean that you know, a few months into a new spell, there could be some element where I was like, yeah, that thing we used to do, I like that. Like, that's all just kind of part and parcel. That's a natural part of, I mean, any, it's not even just a professional sports, like any role where someone has a boss, where someone, they're under a certain style of management and then that changes, right? I will say what I've said really since the hire. I'm not convinced. I don't know that Adrian Griffin is a good coach. What I increasingly think, though, is he may not have to be a good coach. Like these players are so, so good. All he has to do is do a lot of simple things to listen to the players. And I do think the key thing will be, he has to manage the group well. And that is maybe where there would be some concerns, but also it seems like there is a very open policy where, you know, this team (laughs) more than other books teams. It's like, if things are working, they kick off and they tell him, Hey, this isn't working. And to what extent we feel good about it or not, or I I find it tough, like early in the season, we had this with drop and it's like, party is like, it doesn't feel great that Griffin has to be told we should go back to drop by the players. And the other hand, you, you've got to hand it to him. He's just like, yeah, let's do it. That's what you guys want. That's what we do better. Let's do it. And there's an element of that too. And it's like, you were not running enough structured offense. And he just comes out and he was like, yeah, I should probably, probably do some more of that. Like, there's kind of there are both sides of that coin where I'd be concerned at the fact that in some ways it's like this stuff just occurs to him when he's told and the other hand he's just like getting on with it when he is told and the books are winning games it might take that it might just that might be it these players are good enough there has to be a level of contentedness and trust and I think for all of these blow-ups if the fact that these blow-ups aren't anything terminal and they just get on with it and the coach adjusts and everyone takes those new ideas and moves forward. The trust should build to a point where they become lesser and lesser as the season goes on and everyone just kind of knows who they are and gets on with it. So I, I feel increasingly happy with how things seem to be playing out in terms of the situation. I don't know if that means Adrian Griffin is like some revolutionary head coach. I would at this point be leaning to the fact he isn't. He may not have to be. There have been coaches who have won multiple championships who are not like the greatest X's and O's men who have ever, you know, graced the the sideline of an NBA game. He could fall into that category. But if he gets guys to kind of just trust him, and when they see things, and if the right guys see things, I mean, this is a part of it. You don't just, you know, change things up because any player has come and said something to you. You've got to be discerning enough to be like, okay, well, that is a really important observation. That's a the good observation from the right player. They're reading the game the right way. I have missed that. We've missed that as a staff. Let's change that. If he's doing that, I don't know how good he honestly has to be. 
I really don't. It, like part of that might just be if the books can be healthy, these players can go and do it because so much of this as well. And this was it's as simple as that with with Griffin. He might just need to be the guy who kind of oversees this project in the right way, and he's learning on the job. But it hasn't it hasn't blown up completely at any point. And after all of these little things that could just be like terrible stories that begin to spell the end of the Adrian Griffin tenure, like really prematurely, the books have actually got better every time. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they're within half a game of the, the best right record line. in the league. Like it's it's they're gonna they're gonna failings. be the best. They're gonna be the best team in the league. Yeah. I I didn't think that going into the season, but you look at it now and you're just like they they're just they're too good not they're to. They just they just they just find ways regardless. Like it's very hard for them to not win games sometimes. <laughs> it's just a good problem to have. It's like they're gonna be the number one seed in the East. The less injuries play a factor in it, I think. And he just may not have to be a genius. I, like I, I will say we this. can look at coaches who've won championships. It doesn't always take that. I think, um, and I I appreciate how much you're calling out Steve Kerr on this podcast, but I, I think um, I was thinking of Steve Kerr. Uh, of course you were. Of course you were. I think that I think he's a good coach, and I, I just like lowercase g. That that's been my takeaway from the year so far. I think there's some big picture things that had to be fixed, which again is is a negative, but also it's a net positive that they are fixed. And it's and I, and I know there's this idea. I think among the the biggest Griffin detractors that like the fact that they had to, you know, flip from back to drop is a death knell for him. But it's like, you know, realistically for this Bucks team, does it matter now that they had a bad, really bad defensive first four games because they weren't dropping? I mean, they tried in defense, didn't work. You can say it was stupid. You can say he never should have tried it. That's fine. That is the way he coached for a long time with Toronto, tried to bring it to the Bucks. Thought it was going to be Drew Holiday as part of that defense when he instituted it initially, which maybe maybe it would have worked. Honestly, I still think probably not. And you need to have Brooke by the rim, but you know I think Griffin has a lot of trust in Brooke, which is heartening to me because that was one of my concerns with making the coaching change over the off season of not, not to Griffin to anyone with Brooke's free agency of like, is there going to be a new coach who wants to play a new way? Are they going to let Brooke go? They didn't. They won the bidding war and kept Brooke with uh, with Houston. But I would say I think that's Brooke is a good example too, because I think maybe Griffin didn't realize he was gonna have to, you know, embrace Brooke to the level he has. But you learn quick, right? Yeah. <laughs> you get in, you try to start doing stuff with this team. You're like, oh god, if I wanna <laughs> wanna get some stops, I want to win some games. That guy's important. And like that's kind of like he's just really pragmatic so yes. far. That's that is the word. And maybe that's just actually what they wanted. Like Bud is like uh I don't want to call Bud a philosopher. He is a coach with philosophies, though, right? 100%. And yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for good and for bad, I think they make the most like interesting coaches on paper. It's when you can be like, oh, wow. And we know when stuff worked, like some of the core principles at their best, like the books as a franchise may never see some better spells of basketball than like when Bud's offense was singing in the way it was orchestrated. Now, over time, that went away. It, it didn't work. Maybe coming out of all of that, the whole idea, and it could have been behind the scenes, and we spent a lot of time talking about, well, what is what is Adrian Griffin's idea going to be? What's his defense going to be? And they made a trade, and we talk about the trade as the thing that kind of disrupted all of that. We don't actually know, though, that part of the plan wasn't, this guy isn't someone who's just coming in and being like, this is how I'm going to coach. This is my grand vision. His grand vision might have been, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win with this team. 
Yep. And put, put them whatever in the adjustments that takes. Put them in the if positions. There's things, if there's things from the Bud era that are going to be essential to this team continuing to win, I will do that. And I will find new things that will help further with that, and I will do them. And if something isn't working, I will just change it. And over and over again, like that is what we're seeing so far. That is like more management than coaching, I think, to kind of take a, a wider view of it. Like I, I'm not necessarily feeling and seeing the impact of Griffin, the X's and O's coach, or really anyone on the staff. That doesn't feel like kind of at the core of what we're seeing with the books yet. We're seeing better players than ever. I mean, I think that goes without saying. And we're seeing them generally and gradually more and more being put in the positions to succeed. Well, I would say that's interesting. I, I think defensively, what he's done is probably the most encouraging from the schematic point of view of just, I mean, they, to your point, they use more different kinds of defense than Bud ever did. And it's not to say that's not better or worse, but they, I, I think, and I, I made this comment on the last pod, I actually didn't really get yelled at it because I specifically said, I am not speaking to the quality of coach, but merely the style. And I think Griffin is more of a Ty Lue style of coach in that adjustments. That's, I think, what Ty Lue is best known for. Ty Lue is very adaptable. The, the Clippers, I think more so the Cavs. I think the Clippers, there's only so many ways you can play maybe with that team. But, you know, they'll, they'll do, they'll have an entirely different kind of defense. They'll throw out things you haven't seen before, all, the, all these sorts of ideas. I've been heartened by the fact that they have worked on all these different defenses. Seemingly, they've gotten better at all of them as the season has gone on. And I think Bobby Portis had a good quote after one of these recent games, maybe the Spurs game, of just like we are – he said they're taking a big picture approach, right? Like they they are playing defensively for the long run and they're working on a lot of different things and they feel good about kind of having these other, these other pitches, so to speak. So I, I think – it's going to come together. I am not, you know, Griffin for coach of the year. I, it would be hilarious if he does sneak into the convo. I mean, if they're first in the NBA, a first-year head coach having the number one record in the league is usually up there. I, I wonder, like, how drastic would the Bucks' dominance have to be for him to be a top three finisher? Is it even possible? I, I, I don't think it's possible because I think this year, if the Bucks are the best record in the league, the award they're going to win is executive of the year. Oh, yeah. I, I think you'll get there. That and sense. that's not that's tough on Griffin too, because that trade also did kind of change things. <laughs> when he was hired, <laughs> he could have been the guy who came in and the books looked better than ever, and all the credit goes to him. All of a sudden that trade gets made. That's true. If that happens, the credit goes to Dame and the credit goes to John Horst. Yeah. So that's kind of it's closer to kind of a zero sub game for Griffin in that regard. You know he might get, he might be a finalist, but I don't I don't. I don't even think he will. He, I feel like I feel like, like people already the Bucks would have had to win like seventy five games uh, <laughs> to have to have had a for chance him to finish third. Really, I think. For him to finish third. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I think it's a good conversation to have. I think uh, I'm heartened that I've seen it less happening, just because I, the, frankly they've just been too good. I am a little worried that the next time they have a a somewhat ugly loss. It's going to be again like, oh, this is exact. This is because Griffin messed up, which I think a lot of the time. Well, you know, it's not. Can I, can I talk of the discourse? I which should. is what I like we're, to do. We're, we're late. So no, yeah. Just we're we're about to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. I I've seen too many people do the opposite of what was happening before. In like the last week, I'd be like, I hold my hands up. I was wrong, Griffin. You know, I've been. I just, just everyone chill out. You don't yeah, need we, to we go. We can just watch the games too. I mean, we're the we're the idiots that have to talk into microphones and put ourselves out there. 
if you're a books fan, like, just go watch the games. You don't have to get married to the idea of Griffin is a failure or Griffin is a success. It's like, we're early in the season. We haven't got to Christmas Day yet. Watch <laughs> the games, continue to form your opinion, and see where the season brings us. I just think people, there's like this constant desire to be on one side of the conversation with them. It's just not needed. It's like, it's yeah. an evolving situation. We're still gathering intel in terms of watching games, seeing what is it like? What do the numbers look like? Still getting players back healthy to see how all of it fits together. I just think there's no need. Everyone just, just watch the games and have fun while they're certainly this good offensively and playing this well. Yeah, I think especially, I mean, it's just like trying to draw, even now, but certainly like a week, two, three weeks into the season and being like, oh, you know, they're not doing the right things. It's like they're clearly building to something. And they're still building to something. Um, I just think is important. Anyway, as you mentioned, the Bucks play on Christmas. Here is their schedule for the next week. This is just, frankly, insane. Um, tomorrow, which is Saturday, the Bucks play in New York against the Knicks at 11.30 a.m. On Christmas, on Monday, they play in New York against the Knicks at 11 a.m. So... Congratulations, Adam. You've got a, a couple of games that will be on in reasonable hours to watch. I don't know why they're in the same place against the same team. That is frankly bizarre. But two straight day games against the Knicks. Then they uh, Rangers home game at night or some sort of, I don't know, Disney on ice Christmas spectacular uh, or something. Be, it must be something. That's a great call. It has to be something because they don't usually do Saturday matinees. That's no, there's a, it's a double booking. There's yeah. a double booking there. Uh, then they're in Brooklyn uh, to play the Nets, so a long six-day stretch in New York at 6.30 on Wednesday. Friday in Cleveland, this is a diminished game than probably we would have expected after the recent Cavs injury news. And then back-to-back Pacers games uh, mm. on New Year's Day and on Wednesday, January 3rd, both in – or no, one uh, New Year's Day in Milwaukee, then they go to Indiana. So a uh, fair bit of – it's New York and then Central Division – a little bit of a road trip, five of the next six away from Pfizer Forum, but uh, I don't think any of them look like world beaters. The Pacers, they'll always have being runner-up in the in-season tournament. It, they have not had much to hold their hats on after that. Uh, and again, Cavs with injuries. The New York teams are, you know, they're just fine. They're just okay. So not an easy stretch, but certainly uh, six winnable games for the Milwaukee Bucks. Kind of a dumb schedule, Kirk, having all four games against the Pacers in the spell of a, a month, month. Yeah. but but ultimately one that could really pay off and the fact that like there could be this fun rivalry where we suddenly hate the Indiana Pacers for the oh, yeah. future so that's kind of cool I uh I don't think that the new I don't think these games are going to be as intense as some people do after no. the last cut there's been so much time has passed now and just so much other stuff has happened um but I do think but you never uh, the Bucks you could get win. an incident two minutes into the sure. first game Oh, yeah. Right? Like, let's say Giannis gets hit hard a couple minutes into the game. First one's a five serve. Books get their back up. And all of a sudden, like, all that stuff is right to the forefront again. Like, it's kind of, it's fun for something at the beginning of January to have to watch. Oh, yeah. I, I think the, the NBA might actually do this more often going forward because of this. And and obviously, with the IST, we had this, the fifth game with the Bucks and the Pacers, right. too. So, uh, plenty of times to play Indiana uh, this season. But... It has worked out. I, I think the Bucks won both of these, to be honest with you. I think the way they talked uh, going into and coming out of the last Pacers game, uh, I don't know if they're done um, imparting their uh, their will on Indiana. So we'll see how that goes. But 
I think that's all we've got for this one. I, I've got I've got one very brief thing. I'm gonna make it very it. brief. Go for but, it. Um, 2024 Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Oh yes, class was announced. The ballot on what day are we on Thursday? Yes, couple couple of notable former books um, on the ballot. Terry Cummings oh. is among those in the mix as the North American nominees. And once again, which is it the fourth time now? Marcus Johnson is among those classes. If anyone watched the the Bucks Magic game on Bally Sports Wisconsin, you probably saw the conversation about this at the end. Um, you may have kind of even Marcus, rather than saying if, did say when, and Lisa made a joke about that. This really is as good a chance as Marcus Johnson is going to have to get in in the player category. Um, it's a pretty weird class in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's something that probably. Between Eurostep win and six over a number of years now, we've made the case for Marcus, and I do think he ultimately deserves to be in there. He's kind of a borderline case, like individually and with his college accolades, he deserves to be in there. But it's kind of tough in a given year. If he comes up against superstars, like he admitted himself yeah, last year, that was, he just that hasn't was got great. a chance. He was like, they had Kobe this, and Dirk. I, I knew I wasn't going in there. <laughs> this year, in terms of that kind of profile, a guy, it's only really Vince Carter, who's kind of a like it is a weird Hall of Fame case in his own regard. I'm sure he is going in, um, but it's kind of that's a tough one. It's an interesting one. And then when you look kind of over time, you've got a lot of like uh, Bill and Beer, Michael Cooper, mm. uh, Sean Marion. Like these are not numbers guys. These are not necessarily all stars. I think Marcus is going to go in this year. Oh, I think I think this is the year he's going to go in. I know Buck Sands would be ecstatic about that. He remains as popular, more popular probably than ever um, due to his work on the broadcast. But I do think this year we should and hopefully we'll see Marcus Johnson get in. Uh, I think finalists is a finalist. I don't know if they cut it down again or is it the actual ballot? But the next kind of cut down is in February, I believe. early, okay. Early in February. So keep your fingers crossed for that. But I do think this might be the year for Marcus. I certainly hope so. So uh, can you uh, – I know there's been, been the question asked, like could, could he get in because of his broadcast work? That is a whole separate category, right? So Not in this. I was, trying to, I was trying to find it just before we started to think this. So there is a set number of times you can be put forward right. as a finalist, as a player. And I think Marcus is getting very close to that. Yeah. If that wasn't to happen, he would then move to the contributor category. Yeah. Which would factor in his playing days, but also his broadcasting work. I do think he's guaranteed to eventually get in that way, if not. But getting in as a player is the yeah, real kind yeah. of we test of who you are. And I, I do think he deserves that, and this this seems like the good opportunity for it. That's, so that's what I thought. Could as get well. in as a contributor down the line, but this is as a player, he is still being uh, nominated at the moment and is in the kind of the short list right now. It would be great because I think that's really the last honor Marcus has left to check off. He's got the number retired yeah. by the Bucks. You know, he's going to the the basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, certainly rooting for it. So fingers crossed. We will obviously any developments continue to cover them. As you mentioned, I mean, since the blog days, we have been adamant that Marcus is an all-time great among the Bucks and the NBA. So anytime he gets his recognition for that is outstanding. Also should be uh, in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame someday too because he is terrific. He's got 
some time to go to continue to prove that case, but certainly is is just unbelievably fun to listen to on the Bucks broadcast and such a great steward of this era of Bucks basketball uh, in that way as well. All right. Well, I think all listeners should go into the GSPN Hall of Fame if you've hung with us <laughs> until this point. Appreciate you. Make sure to subscribe and rate and review if applicable wherever you are listening so you don't miss a single episode. And check out Cruising for a Bruising where you can hear more of Adam on, on there as well. Uh, I think the Dodgers have spent a uh, billion dollars in the last week. So fun time for baseball. Really good for the game. But is it Eric Haas? Is that the guy's name? Right. Look at you. The Brewers answered. The Brewers answered in kind. So really exciting time. No, I, I do think Jackson Churio, everything else. And, you know, we'll see what happens with Corbin Burns. But make sure to check out Cruising for a Bruising. Talk of the Tundra. I think there's a special collab episode either out now or coming out soon with Andrew Snyder. I've heard he was relatively in pocket for that, but still an outstanding listen, uh, as always, on that podcast and wherever you can find Andrew, of course, also on Cruising for a Bruising. Uh, make time for this, you and Andrew, covering all sorts of things in the world of film. I have not watched a new movie in quite some time, so I do not have any references to make there, but it's a great Christmas show. Christmas is coming. Maybe you'll do some catch-up. I need to. I think I'm going to watch Barbie soon. Haven't seen Barbie cool. yet. So I'm looking forward to that. But check out all those shows. Check out our show. Appreciate it. You can find all the links at gspn.info as always. Thank you for listening. Pod Random. We will talk to you next time.